Well, first off, they're not just the command crew. Captain wants, you know, regular people to hear what's actually happening on the ship, so he'll probably ask you questions. Great. That a problem? How do I put this? My father liked to say that I was unburdened by conversational boundaries. So this will be fun for you then. General Ortega, Cadet Uhura, welcome. <laughs> Dress uniform, huh? Grab a drink, I gotta deal with the ribs. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between the Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton hazing the new cadets. And we're here this week to talk about the second episode of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, Children of the Comet, or as I'm going to refer to it, Children of the Camet. Uh, That's a stretch, but okay, we'll go with the cam. (laughs) Um, Look, I think it took me kind of uh, halfway through to realize that uh, this is a very smart way of tackling your introduction to the characters here in the series. We all know who, you know, Pike and Spike, Pike and Spock are. And oh, of I'm course... glad you I'm glad you already like fumbled that because I was actually just listening to a podcast the other day covering the show and they did the same thing. I'm gonna I'll start trying to say um Spock and Pike as opposed to Pike and Spock. I'm gonna mess <laughs> yeah. this up. But look, uh, those two they were introed back in season two of Discovery, along with number one. We kind of get the dynamic already. We had um, a lot of focus on pike in last week as well and so who's the most natural person to have like a showcase for when it's episode two it doesn't necessarily have to be you know like give it all to pike episode one then spock episode two and then for una on episode three i think it's genius that they went with uh, an uhura showcase i think fans would be very excited to see what a uh, younger version of uhura is like i think this is great and i i'm really um digging like um what uh, the actress is doing with uh, her, her take on her, which is, it is distinct from uh, Nichelle Nichols as well as from Zoe Saldana. Yeah, and I'm glad that they did this episode second because I think it would be very easy to take for granted. Oh, the audience knows Uhura. Don't even worry about it. And we've seen in the previous two versions of Uhura we've gotten, both with um, Nichelle Nichols and Zoe Saldana, very different interpretations of the character. So I think they were very smart to establish who this character is right in the second episode. I, I did kind of, like, my back went up a little bit with the whole my parents were killed in, like, a uh, shuttle accident. It's Way like, to bring the mood down at your dinner with colleagues. Like, seriously. <laughs> I just was like, oh, like, I get a little tired of all of the characters in Kurtzman Trek being formed by trauma, it seems, like so many of them. Now, on the flip side, I can say, like, okay, well, maybe, like, this is the elite starship. Uh, starship. Like, if you wind up there, you're kind of the best of the best. Maybe there's, like, some sort of extra drive that individuals who would wind up on that ship have that people like myself who are, you know, on the Cerritos <laughs> would not have. So maybe I can kind of buy into it, but it is sort of the sort of thing that I find gets a little old. Yeah. You know, I, I did, uh, within that really awkward 
um, <laughs> a moment during dinner, there was kind of a, a fun moment in which she was just talking about how she went to go live with her grandma. And I'm just thinking of like some like kind of nanny figure like in some like little home somewhere. And then she was like, and my grandma was in Starfleet and it was a total badass there. And I was like, oh, okay. Like it just kind <laughs> of like, just whatever my expectations or, or preconceptions of like little old ladies they they all like it's still like the future they all were badasses once until they kind of get old and turn into people really really obsessed with uh riding on horses in the nexus <laughs> and i like that there was some uncertainty to the character of not quite sure she wants to belong to starfleet that's something that i wouldn't have thought of like the shuttle accident is the sort of thing I feel like I could think of in terms of the Kurtzman era playbook, but the someone who's not sure if they belong on the Enterprise was something I don't have we ever seen that like on the flagship ship where a character's like, you know, not so sure about this. Maybe maybe Wesley, but not too often. Starfleet Academy was my backup choice. <laughs> but the the moment where like Spock said to her, like, well, why don't you think about it and, like, make room for somebody who actually wants to be here? If this is not your number one priority, I'm not sure if you're the right fit for this ship. I, I like Spock kind of giving that guidance, and, you know, just, I, I, I do appreciate the series just kind of planting the seeds for kind of the relationship that we know will come, which is kind of a, we only got a, a little glimpse into the relationship in the TOS era, but uh, this sort of stuff, it's going to be fun to mine, you know, for however long this uh, cadet is serving aboard the ship. Yeah, and I initially kind of had a bit of a reaction when she was kind of like poking fun at Spock a couple times. I'm like, well, this is like her senior officer. Is that something that, you know, you would do? But then it's like, hold on. This is very grounded in the original series as well, where she's like singing that song about him in Charlie X. And she'll often point things out like, you know, Mr. Spock, and then kind of explain something to him that maybe he doesn't pick up on. So it's very grounded in the canon of the character. But uh, I, I am, I think, going to have fun just watching these two kind of go back and forth a little bit going forward. I was so happy to see that, uh, once again, Uhura and Spock were able to engage in musical moments in uh, Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, Cam, did you join along in the uh, the melodies there? <laughs> I mean, this was a nice little nod as well to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but that is such a important part of not just um, Uhura, but also just Nichelle Nichols, which was like such a musical side. And I thought they found a really fun way to work that into the character. So it didn't feel like you're just kind of doing like almost like lazy cosplay. It felt like it was a genuine element of the character that could pay off in the future. And if we want to talk about kind of the, the mythology of Uhura, you know, it, it, I, I will never wrap my head around that whole gag in The Undiscovered Country where she couldn't mm. speak Klingon. And it, it, she looked like an idiot, like going through books. And um, it was actually, wasn't it Chekhov that did the actual lines? Because I think Nichelle Nichols, she's, I think she told uh, Nicholas Meyer, the writer-director, that she doesn't want to like make her sound like a dope or something like that. Or, or I think she had a few lines. I don't know. I, I might be getting my wires crossed, but it just, it was one oh. of those cringe kind of moments from that film that I otherwise really like. Yeah. Okay. So the part, she wouldn't say the guess who's coming to dinner line. Oh, that was the one that went that's to what it uh, is. Walter Koenig. Yeah. Yeah. But that whole scene of her not being able to understand Klingon is inexplicable. And like, I get it. Like, um, you know, Nicholas Meyer was not like a big Star Trek fan when he got the gig originally for Wrath of Khan. He sat down and, you know, piled through a bunch of episodes of TOS, but he's not someone who obsessed over Star Trek mythology. But it just feels like the kind of thing that, like, even if you write that, someone's going to say something. 
And the fact that it made it from the page onto the screen like that is, I've never really understood that moment, how it happened. Well, I, I believe Nichelle Nichols piped up about that. Like, yeah. I, like she was, and, and you kind of wish like, you know, some of her other actors would have just piped up and said, is it really worth it? Is this one gag really worth it for making a character look like an idiot? Yeah, I mean, it's not too far off, really, of the Scotty banging his head in Star Trek V. <laughs> okay, but I like that one moment way more. I'm just being honest. I mean, I've seen people um, definitely reference that one in a lot of fun ways over the years. And so it's kind of taken on a life of its own. I think someone posted it as how um, something about like um, the Picard season two finale in a nutshell. And it was just <laughs> them like posting that meme of him uh, banging his head on something. And it's like... That made me laugh. But uh, then the Shell Nichols one, it's kind of like no one acknowledges it in a fond way. They only remember it as a moment where they made the character look stupid. Yeah. Uh, now, this is kind of the next conundrum here. Is it going to be a situation where a cadet is always inexplicably on the comms panel inside the bridge, no matter what, unless she's on an away mission, as we saw here, and we had the other comms uh, person taking charge. It just, it, it's one of those situations where you're like, oh, it's, it's like, oh, look, uh, of course, Tilly is always in the thrust of all the action in season one while she's still a cadet. It's like, I could understand because at least Tilly was roommates with, uh, with Michael during that period, but this, mm, yeah. it might stretch, you know, credibility to a certain degree about how uh, Pike is running the ship with what I would assume be an incredibly competent crew without having to rely on the quote-unquote prodigy, as uh, he called her last week. Yeah, I will be curious how they play that out. I suspect she will probably always be there, and you can always just do the uh, head cannon of, well, there's different shifts, and she, you know, just wasn't uh, there at other times. But um, it's, like, the original series... Um, definitely rotated Uhura in and out so you got a sense of like different crew at different times but that was also kind of at the expense of giving Nichelle Nichols screen time so I'm not really in favor of that and repeating that sort of mistake but yeah when you start to invent these like cadets who are like you know geniuses it's like uh, okay okay like would they always be on the bridge would Wesley always be you know at the helm or whatever and ops or was Wesley helm or ops I can't remember he was at helm at helm. Okay, so yeah, would Wesley really be at the helm this much? But um, I I feel like when you are making a show with a cast you want people to like, you kind of have to um, just kind of let these things slide by. I mean, otherwise, I think Uhura would have to be like a recurring character, just kind of, uh, yeah. you know, she pops up every two or three episodes when they have a, a real, real language problem. Do you think they'll promote her quite quickly? Like, is she going to be going back to the academy at some point or is this essentially the journey of how uhura spent 10 years straight on well i should say actually like 40 years straight serving <laughs> on the enterprise yeah no kidding i i don't have a problem if that is the case but it as you said it, it would make sense if she got promoted you know fairly quickly because otherwise it is kind of strange that it's this, you know, genius cadet is the only person who is ever apparently on duty in that station when Pike's on the bridge. Is she really that much of a genius when she fell for that really dumb prank that uh, Ortegas was pulling on her? <laughs> well, you know. Is that even a very good, like, prank? It's like, hey, okay. wear this, wear this uh, dress uniform. Har, har, har. Didn't that feel, though, like, I don't know, like, I was thinking about it. Like, with Pike as the captain, I think 
with uh, a lot of Kurtzman Trek. A lot of it was like, this ain't your daddy's Star Trek. I feel like Strange New World is your dad's yeah. Star Trek with dad as the captain. And the fact that like when the door opened, Pike was kind of like, ha ha ha. <laughs> like he kind of found that amusing. It's like this prank is total dad humor. And I think it's right in league with what I would expect from Pike on this ship. Speaking of dad, did you notice that uh, during the Hammer introduction sequence, they were literally playing dad rock in the background? I didn't. Did who was it? Was it anyone well, of note? It was no. It's just I, I think it was whoever the um, composer was playing some sort of version of generic uh, kind of dad rock, and I was just like, yeah, actually maybe not. They probably licensed something, but it was so it wasn't like he was listening to Spoon or <laughs> mm. you know something like that. It, it sounded kind of like uh, I don't know, maybe maybe a little bit of uh, Bruce Springsteen or Elvis Costello instead, who are both okay. musicians um, I, I do admire, by the way. Right, right. What's like the the lame dad rock to, for Pike to be playing? I mean, I don't know that I think of Pike as like having cool taste in music, but I kind of that actually makes me like the character even more. <laughs> okay, Ario Speedwagon. Oh, nice, nice call. Yeah, okay. I'm willing okay. to go with that. Um, what did you think of Hammer's introduction here? I thought it was. We didn't get a lot of Hammer, but he had a fairly distinct personality just in his one you know, major scene there, um, meeting Uhura. So I, I was more interested, I suppose, in just seeing how his um, abilities could come into play in future scenarios involving him in engineering. But in terms of a character in- interaction, it was, I think, smart of them to give him like a strong personality out of the gate that you could really kind of sum up more or less in just a brief scene or two. I think so far among everyone in the main cast, he is the one with the least amount of screen time which is fine i i think it's good to I, i'd much rather uh, get a good feel for the characters uh in one go rather than just hand it out like piecemeal you know two minutes here two minutes there over the course of 10 episodes and by the time you get to the end of it you're like huh do i really understand this character if they wait to give him like a solid showcase in like episode six and then maybe you know a little bit of screen time here or there i think that's kind of a fine way to go about this character yeah, same goes for Dr. Ambega, who wasn't in this episode at all. Um, I'm okay with them just kind of holding off, and we get an episode built around, whether it's Hammer or Ambega, or whenever we get a Chapel episode. I think that's fine, as long as like they build a really strong episode around that character, one that, like this episode, you know, Children of the Comet, I think it did a really good job summing up who Uhura could be going forward. I want those kind of episodes for a lot of these characters, especially the ones we don't know as well, like both Ambega and Hammer. We don't really know anything about, so I think it's important to have those probably, I, I would say maybe even a little closer than episode six, like maybe, I don't know, four, maybe maybe even th- like throw one of them in, you know, episode three or something. Yeah, okay. But uh, look, I, I for me personally, I, I thought it was a little clumsy how... You had to have Uhura go up to Hammer and just like, I like to help people with impairments. And he's like, I don't <laughs> yeah. consider myself impaired. And it just, like, I get what they're trying to do. It just, it, it was a little bit heavy handed the way that they went about doing it. It would have been better if they just, I like, how do you kind of fit this in like smoothly? I I, I don't know. Like, I, I think they could have found like a, a better way of doing that personally. Yeah, I think it was a little bit of trying to um communicate to audiences not familiar with like the enar and who this character might be like some of his you know like why he is you know uh, blind but um 
it's also like a little clunky in the execution. I feel like that was maybe pitched a little more at people who aren't Star Trek fans. I am looking forward to Hammer and Spock playing uh, telepathy games uh, throughout the course of the season as well. That could be really fun. Like Spock is often a character who is kind of alone in a lot of ways or feels a little isolated. So I like the idea of him and Hammer having back and forth like psychic, <laughs> I don't know, games or something. Well, look, maybe if he laughed more often than just by himself inside of a shuttle, <laughs> uh, yeah, he, he could uh, you know, make more friends that way. They weren't as alarmed as they should be. Whenever Spock is laughing or smiling, you should be very scared. <laughs> also, I like how his takeaway from everything is like, sometimes things go so badly, you just have to laugh. And then you get him just har-haring. I'm just like, yeah, okay, <laughs> sure. Yeah. But isn't this like the most fun kind of Spock where we're seeing him like bounce off of characters? They're not just like, I, I liked him in in Discovery Season 2 but a lot of it was very serious, whereas, like, we're getting genuine character moments with him that are fun and feel like actual growth from the character. But it's not, like, you know, moody and dour. It's it's situations that are just fun to watch. Uh, until we find out there's some sort of traumatic past that we weren't aware of that uh, he's going to have to deal with. He has daddy issues. We know that already. Uh, maybe, yep. I don't know, uh, a falling out with Cybok will be uh, uh, coming down the corner soon enough. I would love if that happened. I would love some Cybok. Now, in Journey to Babel, him and um, Sarek weren't on speaking terms. We haven't seen an inciting incident as to what would cause that, have we? I think it was already kind of implied. It was the whole like kind of Starfleet versus Vulcan expeditionary group fallout. Right. And it just happened to be that... Um, did, did, did their paths actually cross in season two of discovery because i remember both characters were featured in that season but i don't know if um they actually chatted with each other weren't um weren't they hiding like spock in their pantry or something <laughs> yes in their pantry <laughs> now remember it's like this cave and um, i know i know okay no but it's also that's i got a good laugh out of that episode because even amanda knew about section 31 which not even cisco had even heard of it uh you know because it's such a secret elusive organization but uh, amanda knew all about it well it's like um you know the kurtzman trek they don't like to hide secrets too well because section 31 was very well known to everyone in uh discovery and then in uh, last week's episode, they're like constantly referring to things that happened on Discovery, which was supposed to be like a top secret thing. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. But oh, and, and what did you think of the idea of uh, Pike confiding in Una just about his visions from Borath about, you know, because this is going to be kind of his his motivation for what seems mm -hmm. like, you know, at least for this season, if not the remaining 10 years before he he himself is impaired. I really like this, and I think when I go back to and look at the history of Trek, some of the best scenes are, whether it's Riker and Picard, Kirk and Spock, like this captain figure with, you know, their next in line. And I really liked having that dynamic set up here. I, I just love the sight of the two of them doing dishes. This is the sort of thing you would never get on Star Trek Discovery or Picard. And um, just ha kind of having this moment. And I got a text from my sister. She was just like, you know... It's very clear we know what Pike's fate is. It seems kind of ridiculous to have Una saying, well, maybe that isn't the case. But I also think that's like a very, you know, human thing for her to do. Like if you, Tyler, came to me and were like, I've seen the future and it's grim. My response would be like, well, is it truly written? Like I can understand sort of the optimist in Una for wanting to try to help him along. It's just unfortunate we, the audience, know where it's going to go. 
Yeah, I, 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 I didn't know quite what to think. It made sense, like, when he was calling out the names of those uh, cadets that he's going to save. Mm. And uh, it didn't really occur to me that they would all be about uh, embryo-sized uh, at this point when, uh, you know, I was just like, oh, yeah. yeah, they still got a couple years to go before they make the Academy. <laughs> uh, okay, so we got more Sam Kirk in this one. Yeah. I don't know what to make of this character. Is he, is he meant to be brash? Or did it just happen that he wasn't able to react quickly enough to an escalating situation? I Like, I just don't know if they're trying to make him out to be a dope or not, because it's a whole mustache thing. And he's like, hey, maybe you should grow one. And it's like, is this kind of like the turd version of, you know, James, his younger brother here? And we eventually know that the fate of Sam Kirk as well. And I'm just wondering if they're, I don't know, they're making allusions as to why this why he's not james t kirk who eventually becomes captain of the enterprise i've seen some people online comparing him to sam rockwell at galaxy quest yes um <laughs> and uh is he a joke character like I, I i'm okay if he is i think there's something kind of you know just ridiculous in the conception of sam kirk right going back to uh operation annihilate where it's just william shatner in a mustache so if like they're making this character who's just constantly going to be ill-fated in everything he does that's kind of an amusing joke it's not one you can stretch on forever but if it goes for a few episodes it's kind of amusing uh just the fact he's like standing at this like alien orb and like poking at it with his fingers it's like uh <laughs> i don't think this is the most genius of characters <laughs> you can understand why he ends up dead in operation annihilate then yeah, he was probably trying to pet the, like, flying amoeba or something. Um, it, this whole set they were on reminded me of the movie Prometheus. And, like, that scene reminded me of um, the dudes petting the alien snake in Prometheus. Just gets closer and closer with his face shield there. It's like, uh, okay, guys. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, do you think, I don't know, Sam Kirk makes it past the uh, halfway point of the season before he's dispatched elsewhere i just i don't know if there is a uh look spoiler alert this has already been widely reported but we are going to get one uh james t kirk in season two is he there um i actually you know maybe i'm thinking about it now do you think he might show up in season two because something happened to sam and he needs to bail him out or something like that i wonder if that's a possibility i just don't know how long this character is for the 1701 he feels like the type of character you would sprinkle throughout season one, um, maybe as like a recurring, but he cannot be episode to episode. And yeah, maybe that is sort of the entryway for Kirk to come in. And I'm hoping that they are going to find a way to introduce Kirk to the show that we don't see coming, like in a way that's kind of unexpected. The way that, honestly, they introduced Sam Kirk. None of us saw that coming. And so... I'm hoping that that's kind of, I mean, if Sam Kirk is kind of the bridge to make that happen, I hope they can, you know, make that happen in a way that seems different and strange because I think we can all, you know, come up with the idea of just Kirk being on another ship visiting or something, you know, the way that like Pike showed up at the end of, uh, um, you know, season one discovery. I want a sibling rivalry episode. I will be bummed out if we don't get one, you know, oh. like, uh, it, it'll, it'll be like Worf and Nikolai. <laughs> Or how amazing would it be if, like, you know, we pepper in um, Sam Kirk throughout season one and suddenly, like, Spock starts to be friends with Sam Kirk and Captain Kirk, you know, James Kirk shows up, I should say, um, and Spock prefers Sam Kirk initially. That'd be funny, you know. 
Yeah, like something like that could be kind of cute. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the, we haven't really touched on the conceit of this episode, which I think is... Uh, it seems like kind of an, uh, a standard, average sort of Star Trek conceit, mm-hmm. you know, like, how do we save a planet when there is, you know, uh, an antagonist in our way? Uh, I I thought the look of the Shepard was a little interesting. I think it was, like, maybe a mix of makeup and CG, but it, I could believe it if it was just 100% CG. It was, I, I don't mind them kind of, like, um, going for these kind of different looks rather than the standard uh, humanoid form that we typically get here. Um it could be an incredibly frustrating situation um, in which uh, the guy doesn't really care if an alien planet blows up. But um, I like it when the characters face, you know, either uh, one bad decision or another bad decision. And they have to debate which avenue to go down. Yeah, like this was a really, I think, well put together episode of a situation they have to solve. And I think they did it in a really interesting Star Trek way where I remember seeing shots from this episode in the, uh, you know, the trailer they put out for season one, Strange New Worlds. And it was kind of glumped together with a bunch of shots of action. And what I liked was that, yes, there was action in this episode where they're being fired upon. But ultimately, it was about them solving the problem through diplomacy and through, you know, quick thinking. And it was not them firing back at the shepherd. And that that is something that I like you know a lot in star trek and i hope to see more of i'm all cool with suspense and tension but i like that this didn't play out in just a you know firefight or something um yeah i just i i what, what do you make of the kind of the conclusion of the episode in which was this supposed to be kind of a preordained thing like it would have the planet would not have been destroyed yeah either way yeah it's i feel like that's there to be a little bit of that mm, food for right. thought um <laughs> And so much of the episode is also tied into just Pike's, you know, fears of the future. You know, is it free will or determination? And I guess the comet sort of ties into that as well. And I think it's left for us to decide, really. Um, It's a tough one because, like, within the, you know, the history of Star Trek, it's so much, um, you know, Gene Roddenberry was a humanist and believed humans achieve things. So you want to kind of buy into the concept that, like, the comet isn't preordained. It's not driven by a higher power or something like that. But also it is Star Trek where you have these alien intelligences or just, you know, sci-fi concepts that humans can't quite wrap their heads around yet. So I don't know. It's a real thinker on that one. Well, I I think I'm glad you brought that up because remember the original idea behind Pike in season two of Discovery was that he was a, a devout Christian man. Yeah. And they ended up having to edit that out, or they, maybe they um, kind of dumped it halfway through and then just kind of edited those sequences out. But it, it's almost like the implication is he literally thought there were red angels out there in the galaxy that he had to find. And I'm just like, right. I just don't know if that works in Roddenberry's view of humanism, in, in which... And by that, like, it, it's mankind is responsible for all of the achievements here on earth it's not supernatural entities here and for the kurtzman area it keeps kind of saying like well maybe it is maybe it isn't whereas roddenberry would always have been like no it's it's not it's 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 not really it's it's just corporeal folks not any sort of gods and and because the implication always was it's like eh, whatever you might consider to be a god 
essentially just a real powerful alien. And I don't know. It, it just it's clearly the, the divergent worldviews of well, the the initial Shepard, no pun intended, of Star Trek versus the current Shepard of the franchise. Yeah, I mean, I remember there was a line Uhura had about like the son of God in um oh I can't remember the episode, but it's in the original series. I think it might be Who Mourns for Adonai, maybe. Um, but that was like it might have been bread and circuses actually. But um, I believe that was also like a censor thing. Like they wanted that line put in there. It was not something that was originally in the script that Roddenberry, you know, was overseeing. Um, so, like in a case like that, I go, well, you can look at that episode as maybe something to line up more with what you're talking about. But that was also not really the intention of the show and not something they would go back to. And a character like Q or Trelane could easily be interpreted as a god figure. Um, but you're right. Like the show was usually more you know, it would underline exactly what they were, what their powers were, and how they kind of operated. Here with the comet, it didn't give you that. It gave you more of the, hmm, what could that have been? Well, what I need to happen next episode, though, is we have a uh, shot of Pike with no shirt on, staring longingly out the window, and he's got kind of the Sean Penn-esque tattoo from Mystic River all over his back. Oh my god, Mystic River. I am now having to like rack my brain. What was the tattoo like in Mystic River? It was a giant cross. It was like oh. novelty-sized cross like uh, over his entire back. Okay, it's coming back to me. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Mystic River. We should River. get that photo op with Anson Mount. <laughs> but it's our, it's our bare backs obviously. It's our it's our backs to the camera cam. And we'll get permanent tattoos just to commemorate the occasion. <laughs> Well, we're in Vegas, so that'll be easy. That's true. That's true. Didn't Vin Diesel have a tattoo like that in a movie? I don't know. Uh, maybe in is it, it in Fast and Furious? Maybe. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, okay. uh, or it could be it could be triple X because if you kind of move the cross diagonally, it kind of looks like an X, right? That's also entirely possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. I I, I want to talk about the visual effects here yeah. in the show. I don't like them. I think I'm watching a, a souped-up version of Babylon 5. I look at uh, some of the VFX I saw in, say, Season 2 of Discovery, and I, I find myself impressed, despite the fact that I, I, I'm i far more impressed by, say, you know, uh, models, you know, that sort of stuff, rather than kind of work done via CG. I just, I'm still racking my head over, like, why Battlestar Galactica from the year 2004 that CG looked far more photorealistic than this very stylized, cartoonish CG we're getting 20 years later. I just, I, I'm baffled as to this aesthetic choice on the part of the producers to just make it look like I'm playing Star Trek Online or something like that. Doesn't it feel, though, like that was a very conscious choice to make this show seem more like poppy and almost like comic booky in its CG? Like... I, I don't know how I feel about it yet. I don't know that it's struck me quite as um, as badly as maybe it has for you, but, like, it does feel weird. When I look at uh, Discovery, especially Season 2, Season 1, you and I had nothing but grapes until we watched the Blu-rays, uh, Blu and it, it looked a lot better. But, like, Season 2 looked really good, and I don't know that I've seen a lot of CG on Star Trek in the new era post-Season 2 Discovery that I thought was particularly great. And yeah. I feel like this show is kind of lumping in with 
some of these other ones, like the the last couple seasons of Discovery, uh, the last season of Picard, where I go like, it's fine, but it doesn't excite me in a big way. Um, it does seem different, though, just in terms of, I, I wonder if they were like, we want this to be the lighter show. We want this to be kind of the TOS spirited show. So make the CG more, you know, kind of like, uh, as I said, comic booky garbage <laughs> sure yeah well it, it doesn't cl- it doesn't mesh well with human beings like if this was avatar or something maybe but like when you have flesh and blood actors and then you cut to kind of more comic booky cg it always looks kind of weird it feels like i'm watching who framed roger rabbit <laughs> not cool world <laughs> <laughs> god cool world uh, <laughs> yeah okay well look I, I i think the most visually enchanting star trek series of this new era though it, it, it happens to be star trek prodigy and that's not what i actually expected when you know prodigy was announced that you'd have the kids show that was the one that i'd be more gripped by its visuals than anything else that's a good point actually some of the animation in prodigy has genuinely like astounded me um even in that uh, two-part premiere, which was a little too Star Wars-y, I remember there was like an action sequence with the ship that looked absolutely beautiful. So maybe we're just going to have to accept that the animation's going to look great and the live-action shows are going to be, you know, fine. I don't want to accept it, Cam. <laughs> give me give me better, please. You know, because I'm, I'm... Yeah, okay. I'm just... I keep thinking back to... Okay, the opening sequence of Picard, the series premiere... And you see this, the 1701D again. And it did not look nearly as good as the D looked back in the day, back in the no. 90s, you know, where you had that model. It, that looked spectacular. And, you know, 30 plus years later, it did not look very spectacular. It looked like, oh, somebody made that in a computer and they just plopped that on the screen. Like, it, it didn't impress me. No. What do you think happened with the CG in new Star Trek post season two discovery? Because I genuinely think there was some breathtaking work in season two discovery. Budget? Yeah, maybe. They must have cut budget on effects. Well, I, I'm wondering if like they don't want to like skimp out on kind of the visual ideas in the script, but they know that they just can't necessarily devote the same amount of dollars to getting top notch rendering at this point. It just doesn't look good. Maybe also there was only Discovery running initially, and now they are also running all these other shows, and maybe they just need to make the dollars go a little bit longer for each show as opposed to putting all their money in the one basket. Yeah, yeah. I just, it, it, it irks me, and I don't say, I don't see a way out of this. I think this is their decision, and, and they're sticking to it. Yeah, I mean, Star Trek traditionally has not been the most visual of shows, but I would like to see just something closer to season two discovery. I'm not asking for JJ Abrams, Star Trek 2009 level visuals. I don't know that that's achievable um, with the time and money they have, but we've seen in TV format, they can do some pretty impressive things. Yeah. Um. Look, I, 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 I still point to like the Orville though. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago and it's like that show. I, I can't imagine it having a larger budget yeah. than what we're getting from this new era of Star Trek, but their visuals are, are better. Yeah, I, I and I say that I would say that the the interiors of um, the Enterprise look like ten times better than the exteriors. So it's just such a weird dichotomy between that. I, I'd say the, the the interiors and the production design on uh, you know 
new, Strange New Worlds looks better than what we see in the Orville. So same with costume design. So I don't know. It's just so weird that there, there's like this stark difference between the VFX. Huh. Yeah. That, I don't know. And maybe they'll refine it as the show goes. We're only in episode two. Like we did see a bit of a bump in quality between Discovery season one to two. So like maybe they're going to work out the kinks and find a visual design that works for them and evolve it a bit. That's what we can hope for. Um, Worst case scenario, they stick with exactly what we've got right now till the end of the run. So, yeah. Speaking of kinks, did you notice there was that very awkward cut, uh, uh-huh. editing cut, as if it was meant... It was when the shepherd was attacking the 1701. It was as if it was meant to cut to a commercial, except there was no commercial because we're streaming it. And I don't know why they, they kept doing this throughout season two of Picard. They're now doing it here in Strange New Worlds, and I cannot understand why other than maybe there are some sort of ad supported tiers on some of the streaming services this is going to be on i'm watching it on crave here in canada as are you that's not an issue that we have to deal with but maybe paramount plus wants to leave that option open and that i bring it up because um the television series mad men it aired on amc but i always just caught up with it uh on like you know, Blu-rays or whatever, and there was never any one of these awkward cuts. It was always seamless when you're watching it on Blu-ray, and it was like you're watching kind of a film. And then when, you know, the next season would start and I'd watch it on uh, television live, you'd see that, okay, it would cut to the commercial break, but it it, it seemed seamless, though, again. And I, I just... I don't understand why they're making this so awkward. Uh, it, it just, like, it's very rough and cringy to look at. There was actually a second one in this, in this episode as well. When Pike was on the view screen, it had one of those weird fade outs, and then it cut to a shot of him then walking away from the view screen. Yeah, that's the one like, that I'm referring to. Okay, there's two of them, because there's that one, and then there's one when they're being fired upon as well with tor- the torpedoes. Um, okay. They did it twice, and I was like, like you, I'm like trying to wrap my head around this, because you know, I have someone that has watched television since I was probably four or five years old, and I don't recall seeing anything like this before. And, you know, you can put on a DVD of an old Simpsons episode or an old X-Files episode. It does not have things like this. I, I I don't know. It's very strange. And they would usually, like, build up to black or whatever, but then yeah. it felt like a natural cut. Whereas here, they don't feel like natural cuts. It feels like basically, like, you know, insert commercials here if necessary. Because, like, there's this... Even the music swells. Yeah. And then when it comes back, it's a different musical cue. Yeah. And I'm like, what? The, what is going on? And why were they not in last week's episode? I, well, that's okay. That's why I thought it was just strictly a Picard season two incompetence thing. Yeah. It actually seems as if it's intentional now. So I will be very interested to see if these sorts of things pop up in Lower Decks um, or Prodigy or any of the other shows like does discovery have these when it relaunches with season five i'll be very curious to see because i'm wondering if this is part of some sort of format demand they have now that i don't understand and i would like them to explain but uh, i don't think they're going to well you got to get those new ad supported subscription tiers going somehow but uh this is rough going yeah it just feels like the sort of thing that's 
I, I'm sure there's a way to do this properly, but this is doing it in a way that's distracting, which is a, that's yeah. a problem. Like when you're trying to tell a story, you don't want awkward things that pull people out of the story. I just wonder if it's done because of the way they like to edit and like the, the pace has to like just keep going and going, building and building and building. Whereas if you're doing something like Mad Men, it's not as if you're coming back, you're, you're cutting from like a car chase sequence and then cutting back into that uh, same car chase sequence. So like, it's also like um, that show is written with like full acts in mind. It, it's, it's not like um, you start one scene uh, or you end a scene at a commercial break and you come back to that same scene again. It's like the commercial break happens when the scene is completely concluded and then you come back to an entirely new scene after the commercial break. And, and this is what keeps happening. It's like they keep coming back to the same scene. Like yeah. it wouldn't be so awkward if they're cutting to completely different scenes. And I think they have done those sorts of transitions, cutting between different scenes, especially on Picard season two. But yeah, we've seen multiple examples now of the exact same scene basically taking a pause and then continuing. Yeah. I uh, can, can I float this to you? Do, do you think, look, they've kind of said this will be, you know, episodic Star Trek, whereas the serialized elements will mostly be about, like, characters and all that. I, I wonder if they might be able to plant kind of like a, a secret, like, story arc throughout the course of the season, where, like, they just drop little hints, mentions here or there, and then we, maybe we get a quote-unquote mythology episode uh, as kind of your uh, season finale. I say that because that's kind of what they did in, I'd say, certainly the first season of Lower Decks, in which kind of those final two episodes seemed more like, kind of like, oh, there was kind of, there's a payoff in terms of the overall story, not just the character beats, but the story that they're building towards. And I th I think there's kind of potential for Strange New Worlds to do that too. I think there is. And I think one thing we might start to pay attention and be on the lookout for is I know, um, I think it was Akiva Goldsman was saying he was a real fan how in the original series you had, say, like a big bad, like, you know, the Klingons or the Romulans or on TNG, you had the Borg. Um, and how they didn't need to feature into every episode. It didn't need to be an ongoing arc, but there was always that element there that could start to introduce serialized aspects. I wouldn't be surprised if this show goes for that as well. I think it's all going to uh, culminate in the return of Harry Mudd. <laughs> I mean, I do think Harry Mudd is very much on the table. Um, I'm also curious. We have one crew member who's expressed a certain amount of trauma regarding the Gorn. Um, pretty iconic species, pretty underused. I don't know. Oh, I thought you were going to say that means that we're going to get a uh, the uh, a, a trip to the Botany Bay that everybody <laughs> oh, on no. the Enterprise forgot about by the time <laughs> no. Space Seed happened. No more, no more COD. I can't, I can't. <laughs> yeah. But well, okay. Here, here's what I'm curious about, though. Like, was not the encounter with the Gorn in Arena was that not meant to be like official first contact? That was always my impression. I feel like I need to go back and rewatch that episode again because. Um, we've had the Gorn skeleton in Lorca's, yeah. uh, you know, trophy room or whatever it was. Um, his man cave. His man cave. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I'm wondering if there's kind of hand waving that away because the Gorn are so cool that they want to do more with them. Um, I don't know. It does seem, it, it seems like they're ignoring that little element of canon. Okay. Okay. Um, I can... 
Look, there there have been other continuity errors far more egregious. I, if this just means uh, Gorn, I'm down for that though. That 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 that's fine by me. I mean, the Gorn have been used very well so far, um, both in Enterprise original series, the Gorn wedding in Lower Decks. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so they're such an iconic species, and I think there's so much you could do. We don't really know that much about them. And when you have such a visually dynamic species just sitting there, unused largely, why would you not try to do more with them? It just, it only makes sense. Because it's not like a case where I kind of roll my eyes at things like where, uh, say, the Star Wars universe keeps resurrecting dead villains like the Emperor or, you know, Boba Fett or Darth Maul or whatever. Like, that to me is, like, cynical and just kind of, they just want to cash in on toys mostly. But I look at something like the Gorn, it's a species. There's so many various facets of that society we don't know anything about. And one thing Star Trek's really good at is exploring these sorts of things, whether it's, you know, Cardassians and Borg and all that sort of thing. So I think it makes a lot of sense to look at something like the Gorn. Um, even like, I did like how in uh, Lower Decks they did a little bit more with the Mugatu. I would like to learn more about Mugatu in the future. There's a lot of elements of original series canon in, you know involving aliens they just never got revisited okay well let me pitch you this stay with me but recall last week uh they resequenced their genomes and disguised themselves as the aliens of the uh, week there why yeah. can't we see the entire crew try to infiltrate the gorn uh doing the same thing get out of my head tyler <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it would be amazing if we had episodes where they did, uh, you know, resequence their DNA to, like, look like aliens that don't look like bumpy-headed aliens. Like, you know, like Hortas. <laughs> okay. Or Tribbles. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, um, planet Killers. Yeah. And, I mean, the Tribble, when they encountered them on um, Trouble with Tribbles... That was like the first time they'd ever encountered them. And yet I feel like we're probably going to see Tribbles on uh, on Strange New Worlds. I, I could see that. Yeah. Well, you know, it, I mean, it kind of. OK, I'm fine with it. I, I'm not I'm not itching for yeah. a, a Tribble sighting, but I'm fine if it happens that they do something fun with it. Like uh, that, that that short track was a lot of fun. It was. Although yeah, it's one of the lowest rated short tracks, according to IMDb users, which you and I were in the minority. Like, we really like that one, but uh, I don't know. What do you think it was? Because usually there's some element of it that rankles people. What do you think it was with that one? I think it was kind of the continuity thing in which yeah. they had established that uh, it was actually uh, a Starfleet uh, madman scientist that decided to make them uh, so prodigious rather than that. Like, our understanding was they were always just like that. And then um, yeah. also, they, they what was it? They taste like uh, oysters or something? It's <laughs> Something like that. I wonder if it was yeah. Or also... scallops. I'm sorry, scallops. Scallops, yes. I wonder if it was also that, like, people love comedic Star Trek, but that one was maybe a little too overtly comedic for people. Okay. Yeah. Um. Cam, uh, we will follow up with episode three next week. I, I do want to mention this, though. Um, you and I were ecstatic to see that uh, they'll be introducing some more Star Trek toys, including what we've all been waiting for, uh, Armus, the, the, the alien species that killed Tasha Yar. He's literally getting his new, his own and very first action figure, whereas Weyun still waiting on him. I mean... Honestly, I'm more excited to buy an Armus figure than a Wayun. 
There's like really I, I don't buy a lot of Star Trek merch. So like if you're gonna put something out that's gonna grab me, it has to be really strange. It has to be a character I never dreamed there would be an action figure of. Armus. I want an Armus standing on my microwave. You're you're making Jeffrey Combs cry right now. Look, I love Jeffrey Combs. Um I love the character of Wayun, but it doesn't excite me to go out and buy, you know, popular characters from DS9. What really excites me is the obscure and this is obscure yeah you know where you should decorate your uh, armus uh, on the uh on top of your toilet seat stand uh right there <laughs> multiple armuses. that's not gonna make people <laughs> uh already <laughs> there um we'll be back next week though and I'm, I'm looking forward to this show it's continuing to delight me um no warning signs just yet whereas i recall with, say, first two episodes of season one of Picard, we kept saying, like, huh, what's this show about? We don't know. Whereas I totally get what the show is about. Yes, and I actually had a question from my sister she texted to me about this episode we just covered. She said, um, how is it they made team bonding and relationships more believable in episode two of Strange New Worlds than in four seasons of Discovery? <laughs> well, I, like... We had that long, long debate about whether Michael and Tilly were actually friends. Yeah. Like, we couldn't really find much evidence of that being so, other than that they said they're friends with each other. Yeah. But they had, like, almost, like, like really few interactions that would indicate that's the case. Yeah, I mean, just having that scene in, you know, Pike's, you know, dinner party. I'm like, that does so much. And having Ortega's joking around with Ahura beforehand. And I'm like, this is, like all you need to do you don't need to do that much and i'm like trying to like rack my brain for the social events on discovery it's like we had a party in uh magic to make the sanest man in season one and then what mm. oh uh, oh it just came I, oh, back oh, to me it came okay. back to me i was i was thinking of something near universe related where they all played dress up but uh w what do you have in mind camping buster keaton night Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and you could say, my sister hasn't watched Picard, but you could say the same about Picard. One of the great bonding experiences that crew um, had with Picard in, like, seasons one or two. They crashed a, uh, a gala. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's just such a strange choice. Such strange choices because it's a sort of fixes. For you such can a strange easily... new world. <laughs> yeah, you could easily fix these problems, but just nope, nope. It's not like there's a precedent of like, like hundreds of hours of Star Trek in the past that showed how to do this well. Yeah. So all right, anyways. so we will be back next week with episode three. In the meantime, go to Facebook.com/slash subspace pod to find us and follow us there. And we are begging you. This is a free show. Let's keep it free by. Um, going and giving us a rating of five stars if you would do so and give us a review because that's going to help even more people find the show as well um yeah so excellent uh cam what should people do if they would like to find you on twitter i'm at cam v is in view screen pause smith uh, you can find me at reporting that's r-e-p p is -E in pex sideburns Boy, oh boy. Hope you didn't have to walk around with him uh, when the show wasn't shooting. Uh, O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed.
complete.